Hi, welcome to the cottage. We are a lively outpouring of an exciting adventure into God's riches and glories in Christ Jesus. We really work to activate an excitement for the kingdom of God as it is in the now until it comes into its fullness. We invite you to our sessions to explore the heights and depths of God's love in a fuller bandwidth. I'm Dr. Ken, the pastor of a small independent church seeking to return to the Lord's zeal in times where apathy and lethargy rule the day of the complacent. We try to shake things up and offer a temporary home as we travel this sod until we reach higher ground and connect into the everlasting life from above, here on the earth as it is in heaven. For more information, you can email us at thecottage at dken.cc. That is thecottage at dken.cc. We're in our series on the believer in spiritual warfare, and we're picking up tonight, Daniel chapter 10. Praise the Lord. So tonight we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10 as the background to Ephesians 6, and this is our believer and spiritual warfare uh, series that we've done today. So we want to look at the powers in Daniel 10. We've been talking about the powers in Paul, where he's drawing from in the Old Testament. We were in Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that's why our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but our struggle is for flesh and blood. Just like Jesus came and died for, we are also laying down our lives as we give ourselves in sacrifice for flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so we're discussing that through the lens of Daniel 10. And I'll go again with Dr. Heiser in his book on demons. He describes this, as we said this morning, when Paul uses these terms of geographical dominion in conversation with the Gentiles, he is not referring to the demons of the gospel, which most people have thought. That's something else. Again, we're, we're telling you that the demons of the gospel are from Genesis 6. These are from Genesis 10 and 11, the rebellion. There. He's referring to the corrupt gods allotted to the nations as part of God's punishment of humanity at Babel. That's what we're talking about. Okay? That's where these come from. Paul's language conveys a theology of cosmic geography, much like the nations today. And, I, you know, it's, it's often strange how things have changed on the map. You know, uh, when you grew up, what was the map like? What was Africa like? What was Europe like? But then, since you've been in school and the whole Soviet Union thing, we've had the Berlin Wall and all this stuff and then the Iron Wall and everything that happened, what? So maps have changed because the powers of governments change. Well, as each kingdom in the ancient world had a king and had boundaries, there are also the same distinctions in the supernatural realm. And Paul used these terms that we talked about. Rulers, principalities, powers, authorities, powers, dominions, lords, thrones, and world rulers. 
Now going to the dictionary on Paul and his letters, it's described by Reed as these powers, unlike those demons, these powers, not the demons, are not said to inhabit humans or idols, nor reside under the earth when their dominion or domain is indicated. Paul's not talking about them. Why? Because it's, or it's not even implied as heaven and earth, this age or in the heavenlies. This implies that their power is cosmic in extent. The powers of the air. So it's not down there. It's these powers in the air. It's these spirits that we're dealing with. That we're trying to pray, get to God in our prayers, and they are attacking in that sense. And so you just got to think about it like in military terms. The Today we have the drones and we have the planes and we have the Air Force. You know, of course, the Navy has it all. They got the Marines and they got the air and they got the, the land and the sea. But this is the kind of the idea. We're talking about not the demons that are associated with down or the demons that are associated with possessions. But we're talking about those things that are ruling in those heavens that we described. The, the article goes on, the true enemies were no longer the Romans. Not the Roman soldiers. Not flesh and blood. Paul is saying it's not the flesh and blood. What's behind the Romans? What's behind Caesar? What's the power behind? You talked about the Wizard of Oz this morning, right? Before service. What's behind the curtain? What's behind the curtain? But the spiritual powers that lurked behind the human faces of the authorities and the empires of this world. That's what Paul is directing us towards to understand. That's where the struggle is. That's the understanding here represented. And it's also developed in a vision of the monstrous beast, the article goes on, representing empires in Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 to 8, and the prince of Persia and Greece fought by the one like the man, Michael, the prince of Israel. And we're going to explore that, Daniel 10. And there's evidence that Paul was joined by other Jews in this worldview, in other writings of the day, where the 70 shepherds seem to represent the angels of the nations from Isaiah 24 that we'll get into eventually. And that's what we're talking about here, okay? So, in Acts chapter 19... I'll try to help you understand. This is the context. In Acts 19, Paul is, the story of Acts is about what? Ephesus. And what are we studying? The background to Ephesians 6.12 when he writes the letter to the Ephesians. But what's the backstory? Here, Paul is at Ephesus. And it says, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks and also dwelling at Ephesus. So here we are in the book of Acts. This is Paul at Ephesus. Later, he's going to write the book of Ephesians to these people, and he's going to write Ephesians 6.12. What's the background here? And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. They confessed their sins, their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 
50,000 pieces of silver so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Supernatural spiritual warfare. They used to do all these things. My wife used to do all kinds of crazy things based on what these powers had designed. And Paul preaches the gospel at Ephesus and they're burning it all. And he's saying, you don't be ruled by them anymore. But they're still active in this world. Again, the terms used, we're going to focus on the first one tonight. These rulers, these archetone or archons. Okay, I want us to focus on these terms. So we're dealing with Paul as writing in Greek. Okay, and he's using this term. And then Paul is using what we call the Old Testament that's translated in Greek using the same terms. So that's why I go to the Greek, because that's what Paul was using. He was using a Hebrew Bible that was in Greek. That's what Paul is using. That's what the Ephesians are using. When they're reading the Bible in the first century, they're reading the Old Testament in Greek, their language. And so I go to the Greek because that's what Paul was using, and that's what they were reading, and that's what they knew. So I take you to what they used so you can understand what Paul is doing when he says these things. And this is Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, translated for us in English, but it's the Greek version of Daniel 10, 13, which is what they would have been reading. Now the commander of the king of Persia opposed me for 21 days and look, Michael, one of the commanders of the first order came to help me and I left him there with the commander of the king of Persia. What's going on here? Daniel has gotten a vision from God. And he's like, God, I don't understand. Can you tell me what the vision is? So he begins to fast and pray. And for 21 days, he's fasting and praying until God speaks to him what this vision is. Maybe you're dealing with something. Maybe God is trying to deal with you and you need to fast and pray. But how does Daniel chapter 10 describe why it takes so long for him to get an answer From God. Amazing. Daniel says, the messenger that comes to him says, now the commander of the king of Persia opposed me. Now this is the messenger from God. This is a supernatural spiritual being coming to Daniel to describe to him what the vision that God had given him means. And he says, I was opposed by a ruler of Persia. Iran today. Persia. And look, Michael, one of the commanders of the first order, came to help me. Michael fights for Israel, but remember, Daniel is not in Israel because he's in exile. So where is Daniel? He's in Persia. So if they want to get a message to Daniel, they have to go through the powers of the air, the gods, the powers over Persia. And I left them there with the commander, and, and he's like, They're fighting. Because they're fighting, I'm able to come to you now and get through. But it took three weeks because we've been fighting. There is war in the heavenlies and the Bible talks about it. That word that Paul uses, the first Greek word, is Daniel 10, 13's commanders. The commanders. Now he's talking of good and bad. That's what I'm trying to teach you here. He's talking both bad, the Persian commander, the enemy, but also Michael, the good guy. 
And they're still fighting in Daniel 10, 13. And the messenger was able to get through while they're fighting. To get to Daniel. That teaches us that there are powers over certain regions. And because Daniel is in a foreign land, those foreign powers are over that land. Now, another Greek word is the other commander, the strategos. But the yellow there, highlighted commander, is archo, as in archangel. Architone, it's the same word, archon. It's that same idea, the arch. Like the arch enemy we talk about in English. Okay? The chief, the enemy. Okay? So this is Michael, who is one of the... Not just a regular spiritual commander, but he is up higher in rank. It's showing you that in the Greek we have two different terms. Showing you of higher rank. Higher rank. There's ranks in, just like you have generals and colonels and privates, there are ranks in the heavenly realms. And the Bible teaches that. And Paul is talking about these things that are over these powers that are over Rome, and that's who we are fighting. We're not fighting the Romans. We're saving the Romans from hell. Okay? We're saving. Architone, commanders, princes, rulers. The term here used as a designation for angelic beings first occurs right here, and seven times in another text of Daniel were... We have here in the Greek, the strategos, okay, also, that's related to the term, Aramaic term, tsar or prince. Now, we talked about prince, and you guys just talked about King Charles. <laughs> prince, we talked about that before. Tsar, you should know, because Russia calls their leaders, used to call them tsars. They're just using the Aramaic term, tsar, that's talking about these, and that's why I'm using the Greek because Daniel's not written in Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic. And it's using these terms, sir. See, just like watching the Passion of the Christ, when you're reading Daniel, they're switching and you don't even know what language they're using. The Bible switched from Hebrew to Aramaic and you had no idea. Just like in the Passion of the Christ, you're reading all the subtitles, but they're, they're changing languages. And you don't even know it when they're speaking one language or another one. Now, the newer subtitles will tell you, oh, they're, now they're speaking Latin. Now they're speaking Hebrew. Now they're speaking Greek. Now they're speaking Aramaic. The new subtitles to the Passion of Christ will let you know when it's changing the language. So, let's go to Daniel ten thirteen then. But the prince, the Tsar, the commander, the strategos, of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 21 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes. Now, Michael is higher. He's not a strategus. He's not a sar. He's higher. He's a chief prince. Came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, verses 20 and 21. Then he said, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? Do you know where I've come from? You know why it took me 21 days? And now I will return to fight with the prince of Persia. I'm going back to fight. 
supernatural, spiritual warfare. And when I'm gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece, Greece shall come. We're dealing with Persia right now because they're in charge, but next is Greece. And who came after the Persians? First, it was what? The Babylonians. They destroyed the temple. Then it was the Medes and Persians. And then what's next? Alexander the Great, who conquered the whole world, all the way to India. And that's why you're speaking Greek in the Bible. And who's after that? Rome. That's what Jesus is dealing with those powers. And that's what Paul is talking about, those powers. But I will show you that which is known in the scripture truth that there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael, your prince. Just like you have the greatest God, you got the greatest prince. Because he remained faithful. These others, they did not remain faithful. They broke rank. They broke lines and they went to work for the enemy by becoming the enemy. Mutiny. Trying to take over heaven. Trying to fight. And so... That's what happens at Genesis 10 11. These powers are put over the nations. And then they decide to rebel against Yahweh. Which is what the people pretty much wanted anyway. So there we go, Tsar. This is again what you have in your Bible. It's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Representing the king or the official. In Daniel 10 13, you have the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael is one of the princes. He's, he's something different. But then you have, uh, that, that's a mistake that should not be there, that yellow box there. But in 1020, you have the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. And in 21, Michael, your prince. There's a distinction between those. Then we go to Daniel 12.1. I want you to see this. At that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of the people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never since there was a nation even to that same time, and that at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone shall be found written in the book. He's talking about all these powers. But Michael is a greater prince or a greater power, and he is with Daniel, and that's why Daniel is able to succeed even though he's in the foreign kingdom. And today, you might say we're the same. We're like Daniel. This is not our world. We're in exile. And we're fighting these powers. Daniel's not dealing with these people. That's not Daniel's fight. When Daniel's praying in all these visions, it's all about the powers. It's not about the people. He can manage the people. He has the writing on the wall. (laughs) We got writing on the wall today. The lion's den. He doesn't care about the lions. He's not even battling the king because the king loves him. It's the king's men who duped the king. He's not even worried about them jugheads. He's dealing on a higher plane, a higher level. He's dealing with all these higher powers. That's how the Bible describes it. And Paul is saying now that we rise to the level of fighting like Daniel did. By putting on the armor of God. Daniel 8, 11. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. The prince, the leader, the ruler, the archon over the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. You got this prince 
Not only do we have the God of gods, who's the most high over all the hosts. And we just sang when he comes with the hosts. But you have a prince that's ruling also. That the Bible teaches that Paul is wanting us to be aware of. Because that's where the battle is. That's why life can be so challenging. We're trying to save the people from these princes. And we have the prince of the host with us. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Joshua is getting ready to go into Jericho. It's the night before. Tomorrow's the big battle. He's checking everything. Making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty or nice. He's the, he is the top person. Moses is not there anymore. He's checking everything and he sees someone on the wall who has a sword drawn. He's like, are you with us or against us? He said, nay. Who are you? What are you? And he said, nay. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. How is Joshua defeating Jericho? Because the captain of the host, which is the term used of Jesus. This is obviously some people believe this to be Jesus. Now they didn't have generals back then. The highest term they had in military terms back then was the captain. They didn't have colonels and all that stuff. The highest term was captain. This is the highest. This is the captain of the host of the Lord. And now come. And Joshua fell down his face to the ground and did worship and said unto him. So that's how we know it's Jesus. What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy. So he's dealing with these powers but there's princes and there's captains again i'm trying to tell you on both sides they've got this hierarchy and the bible teaches that and paul wants you to be aware of that and paul says we got power with jesus over all of them but sometimes when we pray and the answer doesn't come it's because what daniel is experiencing is happening and we cannot lose faith Because the battle is not here, so you can't see it. It's in the unseen, which you cannot see. Therefore, it means we have to have faith. Because the battle is occurring in the heavenlies. And God allows it. I mean, God can defeat them all with one, it's over. But he allows, just like he allows us still to be here, he allows them, the same, to go on and battle. Now, John Collins, a good scholar, says, by analogy with Michael, the archangel, it is clear that the princes of Greece and Persia are the patron angels of these nations. They're the angels over these nations. The notion that different nations were allotted to different gods or heavenly beings, Elohim in the Hebrew, was widespread in the ancient world. The origin of this prince idea is to be sought in the ancient Near Eastern concept of the divine council. The existence of national deities is assumed 
in Rabashik's taunt when he says, who among all the gods, among all the Elohim of the countries that have delivered their countries out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands in 2 Kings 18, repeated in Isaiah 36. And what does it say? When the Assyrians came, the Assyrians came to Hezekiah. The Assyrian leader of their army says, listen, none of the other gods could stand up to our God. So you might as well surrender and worship our God. And what does Hezekiah do? He contacts Isaiah and says, what do we do? And Isaiah says, watch what God's going to do. These are the Assyrians. Okay, these, these Assyrians are some of the noted as the worst military people in history in the, in the time of the Bible. The atrocities that you did not want to be captured alive by the Assyrians. You hoped you died in battle because when they tortured you, you didn't want to endure that. You know what happens? This man says this. This man says, none of the other gods could do it. You might as well surrender to us. After supper that night, what happens? One angel sent by Yahweh killed 185,000 Assyrian troops. It's a supernatural spiritual battle showing the power of God. You don't monkey with God and say, your God must be nothing. I'll show you nothing. I'll send one of my chiefs. Now, obviously, to us, one angel, 185,000 troops, we get it. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It's the fact that their gods couldn't protect them. That only one of God's could break through their gods and kill that many. And they went home. (laughs) We're out of here. That's what it's teaching. It's not, again... Paul is teaching us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not an angel against 185,000 Assyrians. The fact is, how in the world does the angel be able to do this? In the commentary on Daniel, Hartman goes on to say, the prince of the kingdom of Persia mentioned here in Daniel 10, 13 that we're talking about, and simply called the Prince of Persia, in verse 20, is rather the tutelary spirit or the guardian angel of the Persian Empire as the rabbis and most Christian commentators have rightly acknowledged. The belief in guardian angels, there you go, if you ever to guardian angels, four nations is the survival of the ancient polytheistic theology which held that each city-state or nation or empire had this God, this Tudorly God, this guardian angel, who was in a particular way its protector, enjoying in return special status and cultic recognition. In other words, they would worship it. As in former times, the patron God looked after the interests of the nature, nation in his charge, so in orthodox monotheistic circles, the guardian angel was thought to be commissioned by the one God to see to it that the affairs of state ran smoothly. When Christians take over the Roman Empire, when Christianity was over the Roman Empire, they saw that God assigned these guardian angels over the nations. 
If anything went wrong in the nation, then the guardian angel could be blamed for lack of wisdom or skill. Following with Job chapter 15. This is how they understood it. I'm letting you know how they understood things. This is how the people of the Bible understood things. Okay? And Job 15, 15 says, God cannot trust. In this way, God was then not responsible for mismanagement and neglect. It's because the powers could not do. To preserve the basic Israelite tenet of monotheism, guardian angels were made subject to God's supreme authority. They are underneath God. This is the understanding of the people of the Bible. Okay, this is how we understand it. This is what they understood in the time of Daniel. How this is all played out. That you have these. Now we don't deal with all this stuff. We don't see it today. But this is what Paul is grabbing into. In his day. That's Daniel's day. Now we're moving toward Paul's day. Let's go to Daniel 10, 13 again. The ruler, the archon of the dominion of Persia stood opposite me 21 days and looked Michael, one of the rulers, the architone, again, it's slightly different in the Greek, came to aid me and I left him there with the ruler of the dominion of Persia. So I'm helping you see that Michael is greater. He responded, verse 20, do you know the reason why I came to you? Now I will return and make war with the commander, the Architos of Persia. And I came in and the commander of the Greeks came. So I came in now and the Persian is going to go away and I'm going to go away and there's a vacuum. There's a vacuum left. Now that we defeat the guardian angel over the Persians, there's going to be a vacuum. And who's going to step in? The Greeks. With Alexander the Great. That's how Daniel is describing this. This is what took place. When you have the fall of Babylon. Replaced by the Medes and Persians. When they fall. You have the Greeks come. When they fall. It's the Romans. But who doesn't fall? Israel. Why? Because they got Michael. Oh they were gone for a while. Because their disobedience. Because Paul took over the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, but they're back. So, in Daniel 10 and 11, according to Struckenberg, the Persian and Greek empires are each represented by an angelic prince, opposed by the angel appearing to Daniel and Michael the prince, and a great captain who stands guard over the faithful in Daniel 12.1, in a similar way, we have the eschatological struggle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. In the Jewish writing, the war scroll, as a conflict between the forces led respectively by Michael, probably the one designated the Prince of Light, and Belial, which the New Testament talks about. Belial is that which is the power of darkness, and Michael is leading God's armies as the sons of light. And Paul will talk about us being children of light and those children of darkness. We're children of light because we suit up in our prayers with the powers that are led by Michael. This is how the background, this is the dictionary for the New Testament background. Now here's my Pentateuch professor describing Satan, Dr. Victor Hamilton. While John uses Satan only once, 
in John 13:27 the preferred Johannian term for Satan is the prince of this world. He's only a prince. Are you starting to see now? He's only a prince. But we give him so much. We make him out to be so much. But John only calls him a prince. But he's the prince of this world. In John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11. This phrase parallels Matthew's use of the prince of the demons and Paul's the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He is just the god, but he's a little of this world. And then what we have here. The prince of the power of the air that we read in Ephesians 2.2 and now the rulers of darkness of this age in Ephesians 6.12. Those are all united under one concept. And that's why often we just say that we are fighting against Satan and all those with him that are in rebellion. We just lump them all together under Satan. He goes on to say, the New Testament never refers to Satan as simply the prince or ruler, but as the prince of devils in Matthew 9, 34, or the prince of this entire world, John 12, 31. So he is above them in some capacity, but he's still nothing. In comparison to our God. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 8 verse 10. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. The battle is ferocious even among the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped on them. And there you have the powers falling and coming underneath feet that we've been talking about. Genesis 3.15, Romans 16.20. They're being tread upon. And Jesus gives us that power to tread upon. Where else do we see these in Paul? Romans 8, 37 and 39 through 39. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're not conquering. We're more than that. We're more than conquerors. So much more. Through him that loved us, Christ Jesus. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power. There it is. He grabs again these terms. From Daniel, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus Lord. But he's grabbing these same terms from Ephesians 6 and letting us know that we have status that they can never separate you from God. They can never separate you from God. It may seem like it sometimes that we're cut off from God, but never Going on in the dictionary, it says, if Paul bore in mind, then this Daniel cosmology of spiritual powers that lies behind the nations, which is what we believe, he would quite easily have embraced Archinos as a general term for hostile spiritual powers who as chief tradents of the wisdom of this age were oblivious to the wisdom of God's plan for the ages as seen in Ephesians 3.10. And so crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. They thought they were getting the victory. But God led them into a trap. The presence of the motif of satanic opposition to Jesus, as it's recorded in the Gospels, are an opposition culminating in their leading Jesus to the cross in Luke 22, verse 3 and 53, that he is battling, just as I said out of Psalm 22, he is battling these powers 
probably represents a widespread early Christian understanding of the spiritual conflict that stood behind the human opposition that led Jesus to the cross. And the use of the word archon in reference to Beelzebub in Mark 3.22. Beelzebub, Belial, archons, powers that Jesus is defeating on the cross. They're defeated at the cross. As Psalm 22 talks about this struggle. Ephesians 3.10 it mentioned. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heaven places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. They offer their knowledge. They offer their wisdom. They offered what they're supposed to do. And those nations did it. They followed their gods and they did their thing. But it was the church that overcame Rome, Greece, Persia, Babylon. It was the church that overcame the world. Alexander the Great conquered the world? Hmm. No. They didn't even know about America back then. But the gospel has gone all around the world. And the church makes known to the powers. The good guys were with you. The bad guys were replacing you with the gospel. So that those like my wife who used to worship these things now can worship Jesus. Because the church comes in to bring them where they need to be. To give them the justice. Daniel 2.47 The king answered unto Daniel and said of a truth it is that your God is a God of all gods and a Lord of all kings and a revealer of secrets seeing that thou couldst reveal the secret. Your God is greater than all. He's one of them but he's so much more than them. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's a foreigner talking to Daniel. I worship them. You got the God that's above all them. He's one of them but he's not. He's so far above. He's a God of all gods. Because I consulted all mine and none of them could help me. Let's look at that in the Greek. And the king cried out to Daniel and said, Your God is certainly a God of gods, Lord of kings, one who alone discloses hidden mysteries because you were able to clearly make known this mystery, Lord. In the Greek, kurios. And this is what is used of Jesus. And who is Jesus? Revelation 19, 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. He's got a name badge when he comes on that white horse. He's the king of all kings and he's the Lord of all lords. He's the God of all gods and he's above them all. And this is taking right there from Daniel. Taking from Daniel. Remember I taught you Daniel 7. He comes when the high priest says, who are you? You want me to get my wallet out and show you my driver's license? <laughs> okay, I'll whip it out. I'm the king of all kings and the lord of all lords, the god of all gods. <laughs> but I'm going to let you kill me just to see if you think that's going to work. Because it ain't going to work. And I'm going to show you it doesn't work. Because the greatest power that you have is death. I'm going to show you that death has no sting. That's the greatest power. Don't worry about Satan who can kill you. 
Isn't that what Jesus said? Worry about the God who can keep you. I'm dropping my calling card here. They understood all these scriptures. He's the chief priest. He understands all these scriptures. That's who I am. Verse 14, Revelation 19, 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Oh, there's more than one white horse. Did you know that? Cold and fine wind and white and clean. Jesus doesn't come back alone. Notice that. God started. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. God doesn't do things alone. Jesus could come alone. He could defeat everything alone. No, he's going to bring all of heaven with him. Verse 19. Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And it's army versus army. Battle. Supernatural spiritual warfare. Making war in the heavenlies. Goes back to Psalm 2-2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. In the Greek, Christos. Mashiach. Messiah in the Hebrew. Going back to Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord, your God, Israel, who has Michael as your priest, is God of gods. Lord of lords, a great God, mighty and terrible, which rewardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doesn't regard anybody. There's nothing that he regards. He's God and God alone. What's the name Michael mean? Who is like God? There's none other. So why would I serve? Michael the archangel says, Who's like? There's no one like God. There's no one like Yahweh. Why would I serve? Why would I rebel? Why would I do anything? Aside from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the Bible presents Michael as probably the most powerful spiritual being there is. He's like, I'm not going to serve anything else. And he's the one that's Israel's patron saint, uh, angel, sorry, holy one. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. There we go, the dragon we read about this morning. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan can throw everything he's got. He doesn't win. He loses. He can't even beat Michael. And we haven't even started talking about when Jesus shows up. He cannot beat Michael. Ephesians 1 and hath put all things under his feet and gave them to be the head over all things to the church. This is what Paul is preaching in Ephesians 6 12. All things are under Christ's feet but he gave them as the head he gave them to who? Us, the church. Hello? The name of Jesus. How can Paul cast out demons? 
How can Paul go into all these nations and preach the gospel and they can't stop him? They lock him up in jail. He just writes the Bible. Thank you, Paul. That's an excellent idea. Lock him up. You won't stop the gospel. That has been given to us. All this stuff we've been talking about. The reason why we don't normally talk about them, even though they're in the Bible, is because all has been now given to us. We don't have to worry about the powers anymore. Due to technical difficulty, we could not get the last part of this message, where I was in Ephesians 20, 1.22, talking about how everything has been put under his feet. But then Christ whereby everything is under Christ's feet, gave this to be over the church, and therefore the church, now as a body of Christ, has this same authority and power given to it, in a sense. And so that's what we're dealing with here. And so we're, we're dealing with this idea that the powers then, and the structure, and what's going on. So Dr. Heiser and his demons book goes on to say spiritual warfare then is about leading a life obedient to Jesus, following his obedient example for the cause of God's vision for a kingdom on earth. And so we're dealing with initially the kingdoms of this world and then even the rulers within the time of Christ of God's people in partnership with the Romans and the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus rejected that. And so then he offers his own rule to which he's calling his followers to participate in. And when they lead a life that's obedient and mission, following his example, then they will also have under their feet the very same. Dr. Heiser goes on to say, in declaring to Gentiles that the Most High had invalidated the jurisdiction and dominion of their gods, Paul did not intend to claim their eschatological hour had come. Now, Paul is not saying that 2,000 years, their end. Paul linked, though, his mission. Heiser goes on to say, Paul linked his mission of evangelism of the Gentiles to the restored spiritual fortunes of Israel, now in Christ. The final, quote-unquote, mystery of God's salvation plan would be known when the, quote-unquote, fullness of the Gentiles had become part of the kingdom of God, leading then to the salvation of Israel in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Only when the full number of Gentiles was saved would the nations and their gods be finally judged by causing them to no longer worship those gods or serve them or be under their servitude. So now the nations are no longer under the servitude of these other gods. It reverses what happens in Genesis 10 and 11, which is why God then took Abraham, an idolater, to begin this reversal. And through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul is grabbing all of this and telling us in Ephesians 5, 8, for ye were sometimes in darkness before you served them, but now you are light in the Lord, and since you are, walk then as children of light. And that's what we have. And once again, the ideal here is where they once were and where they have been brought to by Jesus Christ. And now, 
what they're called to. And that's walking as children of light. And it's, it's talking about then how they're going to walk henceforth. And in their walking, they step on the powers of darkness. He goes on, and we're in Ephesians 5 and 11. And he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The works of darkness don't produce fruit. It's death. It's the opposite. It does not exude God's life. And fruit is when God's life flourishes within a believer and comes out as the fruit of God's spirit. But whether we are to reprove them, we are to bring justice to all the injustices. And that's what the problem was with the Jerusalem leadership. They were in bed with the Romans building this huge structure and remodeling the second temple, Herod's temple, and the widows giving her last two mites. But they're not seeing to their own parents who need food, so they are actually agents of injustice, and they have become what God judged those who were in originally in that land, God judged them and cast them out, as he said in Joshua he would do. And so they're uh, going back to that. And so now we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, saying that we should redeem the time because the days are evil. So we have a short time. While the days get worse and worse and wax worse and worse, we know from Timothy that it's going to wax worse and worse, but at the same time, Paul pledges that we should then be godly in the face of such opposition. And so we're talking about that. And so we have our choice then to redeem the time because the days are evil, we're redeeming it and we're bringing Christ's redemption to others. And as we walk in the light and as we bring others from darkness into the light, that's supernatural spiritual warfare in the way that we live a just life to be the fruit of that justice where there's so much injustice. And that's how we reverse the powers and reverse what happens at Genesis 10 and 11 and redeem the days redeem time and we're going to go talk about more about time as we move into our next series on stars and so we're going to begin to discuss how that we can reorder our lives and because of this and that how we can take the time that we have until christ comes to bring redemption to more and more and save more and translate them from the kingdom of darkness into God's light. And that's what the basis of the rest of this message was getting at. Unfortunately, due to technical issues, we weren't able to bring you the rest of that message. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. You can find out more about us at dken.cc. That's D-K-E-N dot C-C. We look forward to seeing you next time. God bless you.